Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Christos Cholkas. Christos is an author, playwright and essayist. His novels include Loaded, Barracuda and The Slap, for which he received Booker and Miles Franklin listings. Today, Christos is joining me to discuss his latest novel, Damascus. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories in this land was never ceded. I pay my respects to them. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER. Now, the Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear more of these discussions. Damascus tells the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a Greek-speaking Jew, a tent maker who some 2,000 years ago was met on the road to Damascus by a blinding light and was convinced that he must bring the teachings of the Jewish prophet Jesus to the world. This is a story perhaps well known to many, while others may not have encountered the tent maker whose letters came to spread Christianity to the world. In Damascus, Christos Cholkas takes the story of Saul the man and explores his life and the origins of the early church. Join me as we discover Christos Cholkas's Damascus. Now, my name's Andrew Popel, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome Christos Cholkas to the studio. Christos is an author, a playwright, an essayist. His novels include Loaded, Barracuda, and The Slap, for which he received Booker and Miles Franklin listings. And today, Christos is joining me to discuss his latest novel, Damascus. Welcome, Christos. Ah, thank you so much, Andrew. It's a real pleasure. It, uh... Oh. It is a pleasure, and I can't wait to get into this book, because Damascus tells the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a Greek-speaking Jew, a tent maker, who some 2,000 years ago was met on the road to Damascus by a blinding light and was convinced that he must bring the teachings of the Jewish prophet Jesus to the world. This is a story that's perhaps well known to many, while others may not have encountered this tent maker whose letters came to spread Christianity around the world. And that's where I kind of want to start, because... I know this is a narrative, it's a worldview that you were raised in, Christos, as was I, but I've also had it highlighted recently that this is not a story everyone knows or understands. So religion, I see through pop culture, phenomenon like The Good Place, Fleabag, Derry Girls, even Kanye West's new album, that there's this enormous popular consciousness and discussion about the Christian religion. The Bible in Australia, a historical uh, work recently won at the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. And then, of course, there is the ongoing discussion of the Catholic Church and their attempts to reckon with an ongoing history of abuse. What do you make of this broader discussion? And does Damascus in any way intersect with the conversation? I think it's inevitable that the novel will does intersect with that conversation simply because I was writing it under the shadow of everything that you've just um, described and talked about. Uh, but it, but it is also a particular grappling with an attempt by myself to come to terms with this with Saul. That was his Jewish name. Paul is his bavos. Was his Greek name to come to terms with a series of ideas and ethics that I was raised with in as a as an Orthodox Christian, and I think it's important to to kind of put frame it in the beginning in that sense because Orthodoxy is the Eastern Church, and so it has a slight variations to what was happening in Catholicism and certainly what what happened with um, Protestantism. 
you know, a long time after the the death of this prophet called Jesus. Uh, I my first encounter with Paul was uh, when I moved in high schools, moved from a very inner city migrant school to a very Anglo outer suburban school, and I fell in with some evangelical Christians who were uh, good people. Um, but what happened was I, my, I encountered Paul and I encountered him through Corinthians 1 where he says, if your you know, homosexuality is bars you from the kingdom of heaven mm. or, or, or more important as a young 13-year-old to be told that it bars you from God's love. Mm. And I couldn't read Paul. I couldn't read beyond that line. And then years later, I went into a church uh, at a point of real despair, I think is the right word, in my life, on confusion. We all want paths, right? And that, mm. that led to that, that road to Damascus moment. And I found myself falling into prayer and reading the New Testament there in the church, sobbing, but also finding this incredible relief in the ritual of prayer. And I think that's the Eastern part of my experience of mm. Christianity, that the ritual actually get, gives you something. But also, this time in these words, I actually found real solace. So that happened a long time ago, Andrew, but I think the germ of this book goes back to that, to that encounter that I had, um, or those, those two encounters with Paul, right, and trying to, to work out what, what does Paul mean and what does Christianity mean for me. I'm not, I'm not a Christian, you know, I don't. And one, one of the real struggles with writing this book was that the first two drafts were really they were going nowhere because I thought I had to be faithful to the mythology around Christianity, which includes, you know, that uh, the physical resurrected body of, of Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. Mm. It was only with the third draft I realized I'm doing something else. I'm, I'm trying to understand what these ideas meant and how they could shake the world. Yeah. And they have shaken the world. And they've, they've shaken me. Oh, I, there's so much to say, so forgive me for just kind of going on for a bit. The, Not at all. The, a lot of People, when I said, you know, because I've been working for five years on this novel, have said, when they have asked me what I'm working on, they said, oh, and I, I've explained, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a story about Paul, St. Paul. Uh, they, they look at me quizzically and go, that's so different to your other novels. I don't actually think it is so different, really, because I think the question of faith has been, pre, has preoccupied me for a long time. I mean, my second book was called Jesus Man. Uh, <laughs> And if I had a road to Damascus moment, it was in my early 20s when I... Because what happened is after I gave up faith with, of God, in a God, I took up a faith in something called um, small C communism, socialism. And I then in my early 20s was in Eastern Europe straight after the fall of communism and engaging seriously with people who had experienced life under communist regimes, particularly in the, what was then Czechoslovakia, but also um, what was then the former Yugoslavia, um, um, I, I, I found I had to do another reckoning with faith mm. and that the ideas that I had committed to had also led to massive tragedies and massive uh, uh, suffering for, for, for so many people. But I don't believe that that nullifies the ideas so the Damascus the novel is an attempt to work out what is it in the Christian ethics 
that shouldn't be nullified, that are really important and really speak to the world today. I think you've touched on this, but I want to I want to go into it a little bit more because I also I didn't see this as such a huge departure. Topic wise, yes, from novels like The Slap and Barracuda, but but content and message, I saw I saw what things that you were trying to do. And look, I learned a while back that your writing evokes an emotional response in me. Um, so I don't flinch from that. I can't approach your work with any sort of cool rationality. Uh, and as I read, I was grateful for the scholarship that you've put into this book, but I also found it raised questions for me of the religious teachings that I'd learned as a child, of church that I, I no longer follow. I started to think of all the others who would pick up Damascus with their various histories. And if this isn't an incongruous question, for a reader approaching Damascus, do you see it as a religious or a secular story? Oh, that's, you know, that, that question makes me realise I didn't actually, uh, f- I didn't really answer your first question about why are these stories, these myths, um, still current. They may be, they may be questions that are answered in the reading for people. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's what you hope. I, I do. I mean, this novel is set two thousand years ago, but I, I, I hope that it, uh, it, it's like a call and response. You know, in that the mm. the, the gospel tradition, that mm. you, you you can't help but think about what is happening in the co- uh, contemporary world as you're reading it, mm. and that's what. Um, so, in terms of your, uh, your that first question, I just think it's because. Uh, Something like uh, the words uttered 2,000 years by whoever this prophet Jesus was, that you will love the stranger as much as you love your blood relation. As much. There's, that, that's still a radical thought, and it still has incredible implications for how we live in the world now. Think about what's, what Australia is doing to the stra- stranger or the mm. refugee. Um, but, you know, it's not only an Australian question, and I think that's why these... these um, Ideas are so are still being uh, these questions are still being asked, where people are mm. still being challenged by it. In terms of the second part, I, I, one of the one of the greatest experiences of the last five years is that I've become a student for the first time in my life. Right, um, and my partner Wayne reminded me of this the other night because there's you know you you know. Uh, talking to writers, we that that anxiety that comes when you put something that has belonged to you for this a number of years and you put it out in the world, you know it does. It is, yeah, it's a strange place to be. And and Wayne said, "Don't forget what you've learned through writing Damascus." And what I learned, I mean, I did a year of research before I even put paper to, uh, pen to paper, and I learned that there were so many different currents to um, early Christianity. That uh, I learned that there were so many aspects of Judaic religion that I didn't know enough and ha- know about, and how much they influence what we know now as Christianity. I learned about so much suffering in the ancient world mm-hmm. that you don't read when you read um, the great classics of Greek and Roman philosophy or politics because they didn't give a fuck. Can I swear? They yeah, I'll go a- for it. Yeah, yeah, they didn't <laughs> give a fuck about the slave, mm. and that's why I think all those, all those. That study was incredibly uh, transformative. I think, it, it, yeah, it's transformative, Andrew. I feel like I, for the first time in my life I've been a real student. I used to be a student in my 20s mm. at university, but I wasn't a good student. I was good at the extracurricular stuff, but I wasn't, I wasn't a real student. I feel like I have become, have, I've begun to be a student of um, a certain 
of, of ideas in the world, and that's been, uh, and Wayne's right, I think I want to carry with that in me, regardless of what happens. And I think, I think that's what I connected in, in the writing. Um, as I read, I, I didn't know much about your research process actually until after I'd finished, but I saw you discussing issues and I saw you telling me about teachings that I'd learned as a child and I, I realized the universality of it. And then I started to engage with these kind of cliches that we have of history repeating and if we don't learn we're doomed to repeat you you know we talk about the modern australian history that is playing out and will we give a fuck about the people that are currently being treated um such by our our government and i i I wondered are you directly engaging with this or can we can we not fail but to engage when we discuss these ideas because they remain true of course they do and i think that that's i mean you know i i had to write this book in this way because that this is the this is the faith tradition I grew up with, right? This is the one I know, but it uh, and but I think all the great philosophies and I think all the great religions deal with some really basic truths to do with you know suffering is integral to Christianity. Mm. It's also integral to to Buddhism, mm. right? Two very very different expressions of the idea of God, right? But yeah. the, the the notion of suffering is central. Um, uh, one of the things that you discover in the research, and you actually discover going right back to those ancient texts mm-hmm. and reading them, is what we, the crucifixion, even for someone like yourself growing up in the Catholic faith, it, it, it loses its potency because it just becomes a symbol. Mm-hmm. There's, there's Jesus on the cross. You really have to, really have to think through what that means. Now, to be crucified in the Roman world was the most vile of tortures, mm. right? And that with the, the runaway slave. The 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 rebel, um, the most uh, dissident, abject person mm. in the in in the Roman world was the one who was crucified, nailed onto those crosses, and it was shameful mm. to have a family member who had died in that way was um, to to live in an unbearable shame to become yourself because that was the nature of the ancient world the the nature of kinship to become an outsider in the society as well so what so in terms of going what it's made me do now walking through the contemporary world kind of make understanding that about the crucifixion is that if you if you if you're listening to this and you happen to be Christian or have come from that tradition right you know even if you've left it behind if you cannot see that every time you step over a, or, or step uh, walk past a homeless person outside central station for example mm. right every time um, you see the face of a prison someone who's going to prison on the nightly news every time you see someone you hate on Twitter mm. That if you can't find Jesus in them, you you're actually corrupting what mm. is really fundamental in Christian ethics, and that's a, that's a really hard yeah. moral position to take, and that's what makes it, I think, incredibly revolutionary as well. Mm. So that those elements of of living in the contemporary world, yes, I was thinking about when I was writing Damascus. The other one, Andrews, is the I start the book with a stoning. Mm-hmm. Which was also a, a vile punishment in the ancient world, and and that that was the first moral lesson I remember as a young child, learning 
um, of about the, the 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 story of Jesus. And for those of you who don't come from that tradition, there's a, a moment in the Gospels where Jesus comes across a woman who's about to be stoned for adultery, and he he says. Uh, to the crowd of men who are about to stone her, if you are without sin, if you are blameless, then throw, hurl that f- the stone, throw the first stone, right? The moral lesson there being none of us are, mm. are blameless. And the other, I think, equivalent and equally powerful message is to think about what it is to be in that woman's place, right? And, and the reason it, I mean, this is so early on that I first heard this story and was, awed by the story and, and its meaning is I think I, I was only nine or ten right so I didn't know that I was going to be homosexual mm. but I think I had this presentiment that I could be in the middle of that crowd about to raise their sto- the, the stone and hurl them right mm. I think I've, I really believe that now that that's and this book has gone through so many drafts but that first stone story that that, that stoning story has mm. always I just knew I wanted it to be at the beginning of the book because yeah. as I said that was my first moral lesson and I know I, so much I want to say about the book so forgive me for rambling not at all the to your question about the you know how does this book reflect reflect the contemporary world because I feel like the contemporary world in the as I was writing this book, and for a year I disappeared from the contemporary world. I didn't read about it. I, I just wanted to concentrate on this period of history and theology and philosophy. It just feels like everyone is f- bloody hurling that first stone. Mm. It feels like none of us are taking the time to to actually think what it is to walk on another in another's shoes. We live in a world that has chosen to, I guess, engage with so much of what you talk about in Damascus through cliche. The idea of you know throw the first stone is is something that has has dropped to cliche yes. that's how we understand it but let's let's keep going into that because Damascus it plays out across several books it relates Saul's direct experiences those also of his converts and and also one of his jailers and i noted an ongoing discussion around ideas of performance passing and masculinity there in Saul's torment at his earthly desires throughout his life in Vrasus, if I pronounce yeah, that correctly, yeah, yeah. in Vrasus, I made the name up, so you cra- <laughs> <laughs> you tell me then. In Vrasus's craving of a son, and in Timothy's conversion and and his mutilation as he circumcised, he wants so desperately to be converted to Judaism. These were obviously social realities within a strictly hierarchical social order, but I also found my mind constantly wandering to the contemporary conversations that we have around gender, sexuality, and self. And these are conversations that rage through classrooms and parliament, like throughout our society. I never once got any of this reading the Bible. What did the biographies of these men, either the men that you you researched, or in Vrasis's case, the person you had to create as a realistic depiction of someone who might have existed, what did they teach you? So, I think there was a, a really important moment in the writing of this book and it happened with a third draft where where I went Chalkis you're not a philosopher you're not a theologian and you're not a historian you're someone who loves these things but you you know that that there are they are very specific disciplines mm-hmm. and what I've chosen to do with my life and I feel very fortunate that I can do that is be a, a writer so mm-hmm. I had to uh, I and I really then began to think about all this stuff I had had read and then do the imaginative leap, which is to what you know. What would the world be like? I was very lucky. I'd gone for a few months, travelled through Anatolia, 
uh, the, the Eastern Mediterranean. I just wanted to, the smells. Mm. <laughs> I just wanted the landscape. I wanted that to be in, in, my, in my, my, my mind, you know, as I was writing this. So it, it became, what I, what I did was I took, so there's a, with, with Sol slash Paul, mm. I thought I am going to write, it's almost like going back to that 13-year-old boy, right? Mm. I'm going to go, I'm going to write a character who is going through his own sense of shame and crisis about seeing himself as outcast in the eyes of this God that he really believes in, in a way that you and I could never believe because it was so fundamental yeah. in the ancient world. And so I, I begin with Saul in a really in in a state of crisis, and that was my way of finding it in finding his story, mm. you know, and, and and really then asking what was it in these early teachings of this prophet that could have given him solace in mm. his life, if you like, that soul story, and. And the moment of solace is just a moment. You cannot have faith without doubt. And one thing I've realized is that doubt is okay, actually. Even mm. um, I, I think we get fearful about doubt. And, but doubt is, I mean, to, to, to really understand complexity and another human being, mm. you've, got to, um, you've got to give, you've got to allow yourself to, go am i wrong <laughs> that's yeah. what doubt is right and then and then in the canonical bible there is uh, there's a mention of a woman called lydia who is the first greek i.e. non-jewish person who becomes a member of paul's way or sect yeah. that's all we really know about lydia except that she too comes from a family of tent makers which was paul's occupation mm -hmm. and i i knew that i wanted a woman's voice in this book because one of the things i've i've always known about um uh the church is that it's it's history of patriarchy mm. <laughs> has been really poisonous you know the, you know to use a really again an example from my youth like my mum is the most devout member of, of you know of the family but you know when it came also. yeah also. <laughs> yeah and when, but when it came to taking communion if she was menstruating she couldn't mm. she couldn't go it was just insulting really mm. when you um and so i wanted to know I, but what i also discovered in the in the research was was indeed that the women were part of the early church and so the question with lydia that i wanted to ask is what would make a woman like her leave mm. behind her family her sons that's a really you know that's a potent and uh, agonizing thing to do at this moment in history, let alone 2,000 years ago. So I created Lydia. Vrasus, who is Paul's Roman guard while he's under house arrest in Rome, is a character I created, but he came out of... I'm sorry to be long-winded, but, but just to understand... I Really early on, so this is in the process of um, structuring the book, I had the word... I had blood as one of the things I really wanted to deal with because blood was so... Um, so in, in um, part of sacrifice and so mm. part of um, uh, ritual in in ancient religions, mm. but also the thing that is tr uh, another really revolutionary aspect of early Christianity is the idea that blood doesn't matter, that actually you owe more allegiance to your fellow person in your fellowship than you do to your mother or your father, for example. A amazingly radical idea, mm. you know, even, time, now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, even now. Well, even now, really. To, um, and so I wanted to 
So I wanted to have a character who hears Paul's words and is absolutely disgusted by them. Mm. That's for us, because he lives a Roman and pagan code of honour. And so for him, early Christians are mad. They're deranged. He can't mm. understand it. But the other thing that I wanted to do with Vrasus, and and it comes into the, what you were saying about Timothy, who is a, a true historic char- mm. character, and he was born to a pagan Greek father and a Jewish mother, right? The um, Is where why I don't call myself a, a Christian, Andrew, even though I, I, I've realized in writing this book I am still very much under the sign of Christian ethics, that mm. they are still really important to me, is that I don't believe in the, the the split that the Christian faith does between body and soul, where flesh is corrupt and the the, the spirit is pure. Mm. And that that's that has been so damaging, I think, across the history of the church. And yes, I'm writing under the shadow of what's been happening with the Catholic Church. Mm. And that's that's one of the consequences of that terrible opposition so these are but to get to to, to be so listeners are clear these are the ideas going into the novel but i wanted those ideas to be personified by actual flesh and blood and real people i so the the big work of the novel is to make those characters come alive Mm. for you and that you are believe that you will believe that you are there in the ancient world two thousand years ago I want to come to something you just mentioned there, and I know we, we don't have a lot of time. I'm looking at the clock. But if we can touch on there's the penultimate book of Damascus, you show Timothy and Abel. They're both students of Paul. They're in Ephesus some generation after Paul's death. And throughout this book of Damascus, they argue over interpretation of the biblical teachings and the, the iterations of the factions within their group um, uh, Timothy is the head of the group in Ephesus, and uh, Abel is the head of the group in Colossae. In Colossae, it felt like a turning point in the book, in the history. You mentioned the way we grapple. So the modern Catholic Church is grappling with its history. It felt like a turning point for this nascent religion, a moment that we might be able to recognise here, two thousand years later, where things became political where things started going wrong. Can you talk a little bit about this scene and what you wanted to convey? Yes, so what happens is um, that that third part happens after the death of Paul. It also happens after the, um, the destruction of Judea and Jerusalem by the, by the Romans. And one of the things that animated the early Christians was the belief that Jesus was right, going to return and it was right around the corner. Mm-hmm. If Jesus is going to return in a matter of days or months or like a thief in the night, as Paul writes, then you can live a celibate life. Mm. You can give up all your property, which is one of the commands of Christianity. Okay. You can you can live that way because he is coming. And then I have these old people realizing he is yet to come. And it's much, much harder to sustain those kind of Moral, uh, ethics mm. and ways of living into a perpetual future. And that I think is one of the struggles of the church. The other thing, uh, th- though he doesn't have a chapter of his own, I've created uh, Thomas, who who is one of the 12 apostles, who in there's an ap- apocryphal um, legend, and it is a legend, that he is Jesus' twin brother. 
and and uh, uh, Judas Thomas Vivimos Vivimos Thomas. So uh, the, the the Vivimos is the Greek word for twin. Uh, Thomas is the Aramaic. So the, it's it's punctuated twice for mm. us. And there is also I discovered in the in the in the reading a gospel that had been eliminated. There's so many gospels that have been eliminated by yeah. the church when it became the official. Um, a religion of the Roman Empire, including the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which mm. is the voice written in uh, a gospel written in the voice of a woman. So these are the Gnostic Gospels this, that were only discovered about eighty years ago. That's yeah. right, and and one of the uh, but one of the profound things about the the Thomas Gospel is that it is, you know, there's as in scholarship, there's always debate, but it is arguably uh, one of the early Christian mm. written texts, and is. Um, Contemporary to the Gospel of John, which is one of the canonical ones, uh, Gospels. What, when you read the Gospel of Thomas, there is no resurrection. Mm. Jesus dies. So what we have are his words. And I realized oh, as soon as I read it, and, and Andrew, you come from a religious background. Mm. So yeah, it was like, why had I never been told about this? That there's this other tradition I remember made, a similar moment when I discovered this and, and yeah. And and for me, Thomas is kind of the shadow action mm. character. He the, the real wrestling is between Paul and Thomas because they're, these are the two different ways Christianity could have gone, mm. the Pauline or the Thomas way, which is, and the Thomas way is harder because it's to live in that perpetual doubt, yeah. you know, um, that he will never come. He came once and that's what we have to be, we, we have to be satisfied with the words. Yeah. And so... That final section really is is me trying to come to to make it vivid to the reader how then this faith began to splinter under the force of all these historic yeah. <laughs> weights really you know what and um and if anything that I'm really wanted to do was <laughs> um, I'm going to use a very Christian metaphor I wanted to resurrect Thomas because I think that is actually a very important. Uh, way we could that early mm. Christianity could have gone, and it was. I, I, I'm sorry that for 1700 years it got lost. Yeah. One thing that has, I, I'm going to go so far as to say, plagued me as I read this is, I approached this and I thought, do I need this book in my life? I think I know this story, and I started reading it because partly for the opportunity to speak with you because you're a very exciting person to speak to, very exciting person to read. And as I read, I realized what you were doing and what you were saying in this book. And I've talked about the reverberations that I felt in our current world. And so with, with that in mind, I wondered, what is something that maybe you could tell me or tell, tell people who are in a similar situation to me, something from your research, something from your writing that you discovered someone who might miss this book because they think they already know the story? Oh, I, I would say that that because these ancient words have been so clouded over by power and mystery and mythology, mm. they have lost uh, their potency. Mm. But I think that if you actually go back to them and that you really place yourself in the world that they emerge from you will you will be what is the word what is the word that you will be i mean i think you will be humbled by them mm -hmm. um you know that there there is 
I mean, I've, I've been wrestling with this with stuff for a very, very long time, Andrew. I think it's. I I would say that there is that this isn't that you can read this book if you're an atheist yeah. because it isn't really about you know the value of religion. It's yeah. actually a book, and this is it ties back right to to Barracuda, which also had the same concern for me. It's like. Do we want to live a good life on this planet? Mm. And do we want to live it in a life that is kind and generous and welcoming? Yeah. Right? That that those are ancient and contemporary concerns, mm. really. And that if you shrug off if you shrug off where some of these ethics came from, you're actually shrugging off a potential to to um to make them part of how we live now. Yeah. I think I think we need to know our history. I'm I'm a real believer in that, and I I think we need to learn our history at every moment of our lives in so many ways. And that that's what I would say to someone about um, about the book I've tried to write. But I would say you don't have to find it through Damascus. Just just don't be scared of history. Mm. You know, and don't be smug about history. So many of us are really smug, and we try and put history in its place we would never have done that in 500 years people will if they exist on this planet will be looking back at what we've done and they will say how could they be so terrible what you said about being a student it needs that humility it needs that to be humble and to learn mate i've had such a great conversation i wish we could continue I, yeah i mm. do and, and andrew thanks for being completely um you know upfront and honest and mm. like uh, this book means so much to me um because these ideas mean so much mm. to me I am joined by Christos Cholkas. We are discussing his latest work. It is Damascus, Christos. So many thanks for you coming in and talking about it. Ditto, my friend. Thank you heaps, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Christos Cholkas. Christos's new novel is Damascus, and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And click subscribe in your podcast app. You'll get a great new conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations. Till then, happy reading.